0: Welcome back to the CIO show. I'm David Binning, Associate Editor, CIO Australia. We apologize, it's been a long hiatus. A lot's been going on while we've been off air, including the rebranding of our parent, IDG Communications, as The Foundry. Watch this space. Now, as anyone who follows CIO would know, Revenue New South Wales CIO Kathleen McKay took out the CIO 50 2021, largely for her work in applying AI and machine learning to identify vulnerable people and to help develop better systems and processes for managing them in the system. Somewhat awkwardly for her, Revenue New South Wales, and also, if we're honest, at CIO as well, the New South Wales Ombudsman released a report late last year concluding that machine technologies used by Revenue New South Wales between 2016 and 2019, uh, McKay's tenure was largely after that period, to garnish monies owed for fines were applied unlawfully and called for significant reforms in how the technology should be used right across the public sector. It spawned an inevitable flurry of headlines proclaiming RoboDebt 2.0 and was no doubt viewed by many working in tech as an unnecessary setback on the road to governments harnessing machine technologies to deliver better quality services to people, communities and businesses and improve lives. And there are many examples of this happening, of course. But the Ombudsman report was probably also a wake up call, reminding us all that governments face unique challenges in deploying AI and ML technologies compared with the private sector, including legal, privacy and political factors that need to be carefully balanced. Joining me now are Dr Ian Opperman, Chief Data Scientist with the New South Wales Government. Ian, welcome back to the CIO Show. Thank you, David. And also Jeannie Marie Patterson, Professor of Law, Co-Director of the Centre for AI and Digital Ethics at the University of Melbourne. Jeannie, welcome to the CIO
1: Show. Oh, Thanks for having me, David.
0: Great, Ian. To start with you, you're, you're somebody who's really at the forefront of developing Frameworks for more ethical applications of AI in the public sector. For the benefit of our audience, and 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 but, and I talk us through a little bit about you know some of those activities that you're involved with at the moment.
2: Yeah, thanks, David. So I joined New South Wales Government in, way back in 2015 to run the Data Analytics Centre, and we spent a lot of time bringing more and more data to bear on wicked policy challenges, problems that are complex, subtle, and ultimately have people's behaviour at the heart. Between 2015-2019, we were using increasingly sophisticated AI techniques or machine learning techniques to try and better understand, develop insights, develop models, and develop predictors from very large numbers of data sets, but always using archival or snapshot-in-time data sets. During the 2021, a couple of big things happened. I mean, apart from responding to COVID, what we did was take some big steps forward in use of data for operational activities. So, Uh, New South Wales started using increasingly sophisticated AI machine learning for operational activities, but with with fairly limited scope. In 2020, we released the AI strategy, which had a a companion piece, which was the AI ethics policy and how to guide, this is how to take the next step. We also released some strategies around uh, the smart cities and smart places. And then subsequently in 2021, we released the, the data strategy now, wrapped around all of that what we were doing was looking to bring increasing use of ai to life for operational issues as well as for insights generation and during 2021 we formed the ai advisory committee and started to develop an assurance framework for appropriate use of ai which mapped to the ethics uh, policy and, and the principles in the ethics policy but also lined up with a strategy but uh, that that uh, ai assurance framework was finally endorsed by New South Wales Cabinet in the middle of December 2021, and it comes into effect, in fact, this month in March. So along the way, we've been not only looking to improve people's understanding, awareness of use of data, including governance, but also to try and map the principles in the AI policy to the bits. So when an engineer is doing something or a scientist is doing something or a data analyst, there's a much stronger connection between what they're doing at the desktop level and also the principles which we're supposed to be applying.
0: Sure. And I understand that that, that committee has has broadened in, in both number as well as the sort of different disciplines that are represented within it,
2: right? Yeah, so the committee was initially drawn principally from external folks to government. Uh, there was uh, at least, apart from myself, there was at least one of the New South Wales government person on the committee. And what we were looking for was a mix of people with, with ethics, with policy, with technical, with standards experience, and also but also some some legal experience. We were trying to ensure that we addressed all of the dimensions of appropriate use of AI. It's not just technical, it's not just policy, it's not just any one discipline. And we got a very, very good group of people. Now, as we move into this next phase, we we move up a notch in terms of the the authority of the advice. As an advisory committee, we, we suggest, and take believe it as a review committee, which is what it will become during this month or at least hopefully during this month, is, is possible that we tick into April, but either way, let's just say the next step we take is a review committee is, is a group that you, uh, when you review your AI solution, that, that advice is considered something that you should respond to. And if you if you don't respond to it or you don't follow that advice, you have to have very good reasons why. The The composition will change ever so slightly. We've had a couple of folks who uh, need to step off just because of their personal commitment. We We've been a very, very active committee We've met every month uh, during the course of 2021 and spent a lot of time digging in the projects. And there's also a desire if we're going to take that next step up to have a couple more folks in from New South Wales government who are sort of lead users in this space. So the composition will, will, will alter a little, but not fundamentally.
0: Sure. And, and obviously, one of the disciplines that we're we're hearing mentioned more and more increasing calls for people from this particular discipline to be involved in the design and deployment of AI systems as uh, legal professionals. Jenny, throwing it over to you, you know, obviously, as as we all know, the New South Wales Ombudsman Report made repeated mention of, you know, the importance for lawyers to be involved in in the designing of of AI systems. As a a law professor, you must have some interesting um, perspectives on, you know, the, the challenge, not just the necessity of that, but also the challenges around that.
1: Yeah, and I mean, um, all kudos to the new, new South Wales government for putting together this esteemed panel and taking these issues so seriously, because we're kind of in new territory here when we're using a number of these technologies. Um, and I think it was interesting to hear um, Ian talk about this move, because we're not just using data to give ourselves snapshots or dashboards about what's happened in the past, we're increasingly using the data-driven technologies, machine learning technologies to guide and even make decisions um, in the course of government. So the idea that we've got a really robust um, group of people scrutinising that process from start to to go and and engaging in the iterative process is very important. it's interesting to see that to hear the comment that there should be more lawyers involved, um, and I understand where that comes from because, of course, as you started out by saying, David, um, government decisions are, le- are subject to a level of scrutiny um, and have obligations attached to them that don't apply in the private sector. So that idea that government decisions don't just have to be um, made um, and good data but have to be made according to the law and within the law means that yes lawyers have to be involved but what I'd also say is that the people who need to be involved are the people who um, understand that enough about the technology to see the problems that might emerge and obviously Ian is one of those people and is on the committee um, and also I would say the people who are affected by the technology so I I said before, we're in a new field. The law doesn't really know what to do with some of these machine learning data-driven technologies. The technology is by far outpacing the law. The law is, I think, capable of evolving to, be, to respond, but we need people that are affected, people who are ethicists, people who are technologists to think carefully about what we want the technologies to do, what we want their impact on society to be and not just look at that legal compliance question. And I would say I have every every confidence that Ian is Ian's committee is aware of this. But it's really important, I think, for our listeners to understand that the law in this space is really only the only the beginning, and the challenges we're facing go well beyond what the law at this point is responding to.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the I mean, that New South Wales report was I mean, it was a pretty yeah, pretty stunning document, really, and hard uh, going around, yeah. as, as we can all appreciate. <laughs> and and then, uh, Yeah, sorry.
1: I was just going to say one of the interesting things about the New South Wales report is it talked about the fact that it was the ombudsman, and the ombudsman scrutinized decisions to see if they're lawful. They comply with the requirements of the law that's given power to the relevant decision-maker to make sure that the decision is not contravening other laws, such as laws against discrimination. But the ombudsman also has the authority to look at whether the decision is fair in the circumstance. And that 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 goes beyond compliance with the law as it's written now and looks at these questions about the effect on vulnerable communities, the effect on society, social licence and the expectations indeed. Of broader society for how government should interact with its um, citizens.
0: Yeah, indeed. I mean, that and that sort of leads us inevitably, and it's, it's so so huge this topic. But you know, your comments there, Jenny, just sort of lead us inevitably to that question about discretion within within the law, in particular, as it relates to, to government and the law and and citizens. And you know, obviously, with the the New South Wales, Remedy New South Wales incident and um, and many other examples. That seems to have been a kind of, you know, a a snag really, whereby it's been found that computers have overridden, you know, knowingly or unknowingly, this sort of enshrined responsibility for public servants to exercise discretion. And And it really looms large when you're talking about vulnerable people, right?
1: Absolutely. So there's a combination of concerns that were raised in the Ombudsman report. And let's remember this report is looking back at a period of time that, you know, I think it's looking back 2019 and, and before then. Yeah, um, and yeah, so some yeah, of the issues yeah. have been addressed. But what the report was saying is that the automated system that was garnishing debts, so that's taking money out of... Out of so people who owe money to the government, fines and the like... Um, there is a power for the government to, in fact, take money directly out of their bank account to pay that debt and there's certain rules that are that attached to when that can be done and there's also a requirement for a decision to be made, for the decision maker to be satisfied that this is appropriate in certain circumstances. And what the automated system did is, one, it automatically took the money out and, two, initially, it, in some cases it took all of the money out. Um, now the the new south Wales revenue service addressed that problem of all of the money being taken out of um citizens accounts because people were left with no money to buy food or pay rent or fix their bridge so it addressed that problem um and it made an attempt to introduce a hardship um, program for for debtors or people who owed money to the government who were vulnerable um, or under financial hardship so You see an iterative process happening there with the system being improved. Mm. Um, But at the end of the day, the report makes, the, the Ombudsman report makes the point that this is supposed to be a discretion and a discretion requires that a human applies their mind to the problem. And even a recommendation from a computer about what should be done might be factually accurate in most circumstances, but if the decision maker doesn't have adequate information to themselves be satisfied in the circumstance, then that decision is outside the law, as well as in certain circumstances, you know, being unfair. And if I can just make one other point, the revenue authority who was garnishing the debts did did fix these problems as it went. Yes. But we shouldn't be really experimenting with people's lives like that. Like the, the system should worked better before it was implemented. Uh,
0: yeah, I, I, I suppose so. There's always going to be a degree of trial and error, I guess.
2: Honestly, during the course of the last year, the stuff that, that New South Wales is using AI for, it's actually really serious. Uh, so the conversation we've had as the uh, advisory committee, they are very respectful, but they are very, very serious conversations where we look at the potential and thinking through those harms. The, uh, you know, we, we started with the easy ones, and then we worked our way up to the hard ones during the course year deliberately just so we, we could upskill as a committee. And we, we had some very, very serious, very respectful, very serious conversations with health and with police and with some other folks.
0: And, and, of course, we know throughout the COVID pandemic how important you know, machine technologies have been in, in managing this really unexpected uh, crisis.
2: Yeah, David, I mentioned that up until... 2019, we'd been exploring a whole range of different data analytics applications, machine learning, lots of different data sets, really trying to push the the big data envelope and and demonstrating value. 2020 changed everything. With the advent of COVID, everybody wanted up-to-date data from a whole wide range of different variety of, of different sources because they needed to know what's going on right now. They needed situational awareness. They needed it right now. And increasingly, they wanted to understand the implications across domains of of the health response, the restrictions, and then subsequently the economic stimulus. So the value of data suddenly went up in everybody's esteem. The value of real-time quality analytics, which helped people make decisions, actionable analytics suddenly went up in everybody's esteem. It was remarkable. It was a remarkable time. Or the use of not only a wide variety of data sets, non traditional data sets. Health, for example, were looking at transport data and possibly have never done that before. Transport were looking at, at a whole range of different economic impacts data and possibly have never done that before. And Treasury, of course, was looking at trying to understand how people were responding to those, those, those health based restrictions. So it was an incredible time for an increase in an understanding of the value of data analytics. It was an incredible time for people to look beyond their traditional domains in terms of the variety of data sets. And it was an incredible time to remember the importance of governance. We all knew that during a pandemic, people are willing to have more data used in order to deliver a better outcome. But we also knew that that change in balance is something that would not last forever. So we really doubled down on the governance aspects. We really Double down on clarity of purpose and ensuring that that it was the the right people accessing the right data for the right reasons at the right time, and not an yep. ongoing uh, situation. So it was an incredible period, and the uh, it, it certainly moved us forward. And a lot of the, the what we learned from that was then built into the New South Wales Data Strategy, which was ultimately released in twenty
0: twenty one. So in, in obviously, New South Wales is is the biggest state in Australia by some margin, but. Virginia, of course, the the COVID crisis was was probably you know, worse in Victoria, in particular in Melbourne, than anywhere else. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on what, what Ian mentioned then from the perspective of New South Wales Health that relates to what your thoughts are about the uh, Victoria's response from an IT point of
1: view? I'm probably not going to go down the victorious <laughs> response route because we, we know what happened there. But I think Ian's right. I mean, we saw, I think, tremendous public interest and generosity in terms of using information to control the pandemic. But I think it also almost provided us with a a case study or an illumination of the concerns that can arise when we're using data and data-driven technologies and public-private partnerships in a situation of emergency. Because I think although people really wanted to be able to contain the spread of the pandemic and the like, if we think back right to the outset when, remember COVID safety, and mobile phone tracking, which fell off the radar quite quickly. But the idea that we would do tracking through phones raised a lot of concerns with people about things like privacy transparency, uh, a jurisdictional creep where information is collected for one purpose then used in another, and equity because there were people who weren't represented in the data sets for one reason or another. So I think Ian's right. It pushed us along in what can be done with data and the need for good governance, but it also, I think, made us reflect on the risks. And the other thing I would add is remember at the outset, The government was going to team up, or was talking about teaming up with Apple and Google to have some fabulous COVID tracing app that would transcend all phones. Now, this idea that I think we're seeing in in the the sort of AI world is public-private partnerships where the public possibly has all the technology and a lot of bargaining power. And that's something we really need to scrutinise going forward because government may have its house in order, but I'm not sure all of the tech companies it's dealing with do. And hence we go back to Ian's comments and your comments, David, about the importance of procurement. I think
0: we can accept that they definitely do not have their houses in order.
1: We enable any organisation To use any technology. We help all companies become technology companies. Protecting the identity of both workforces and customers. Connecting the right people to the right technology at the right time. Okta, one trusted platform to secure every identity in your organisation.
0: Back to you, Ian, one of the other observations I know we keep talking about the Ombudsman report, but I mean, it was so comprehensive. It, it mentions that there's no Australian jurisdiction appearing to be working on creating a registry of automated decision-making systems. And I know this is something that, that, you know, that you're aware of. I'd just be interested to learn a little bit more about, you know, what you're sort of undertaking and you and your team are undertaking to do in, in addressing that.
2: Yeah, thanks, David. The... There's a lot in what's just been said, but let's just focusing on the question you've asked. Uh, A registry of automation or machine learning systems or AI uh, are are somewhat different things, but the, the case of we invited the Ombudsman into the first meeting of the AI committee this year and we had a, a very good conversation about the concerns that were raised in the report and also how the assurance framework is expected to work in future to try and specifically address some of the concerns that were raised. The, the, the difference between automation and AI is an important one in, in the case of automatic garnishing of of accounts that that's an automated process. AI is being used for other purposes such as identifying vulnerable individuals in the case of revenue or in the case of health looking at patients in emergency departments to try and determine whether they have sepsis. The the automated system may well come from a, whole, a series of rules that have been developed and put in place and then essentially allowed to run and Jeannie mentioned that there were some some early stage problems which potentially took more than the the, the protected amount inside the account there's a couple of things in in what we're doing which are really trying to ensure that we do move cautiously forward with use of ai and that means with every project pilot first and then scale so that we identify those amplification issues early on but coming back to the question you asked there's there there is such a broad spectrum of use of data, use of automation, use of machine learning and use of of really sophisticated machine learning. The conversation we had with the Ombudsman went along the lines of, would it be better if we looked at where we were really pushing the envelope with really advanced use of AI such as, for example, the sepsis prediction or vulnerability prediction, or is it more of interest to understand applications of of automated systems or of rules-based systems which, which don't adapt, which don't learn? except by people coming in and, and modifying the system. And the conclusion was that at the moment, it's, um, it, it's probably more important to understand, at least from the, the world of AI, where we're really looking at those cutting edge components, and it would be a snapshot in time, but from the, the, the complaints that get generated or the concerns about appropriate use of, of rules-based systems, there is there is something a little different, but potentially, Uh, valuable from the ombudsman's perspective around understanding where these automated systems are running.
1: Ian has raised such an important distinction that I think is worth spending some time on, which is this distinction between an automated system and a machine learning system. And indeed, we could go further and go an adaptive um, machine learning system and one that's that's fixed in time effectively. Um, And what I think Ian is talking about, and Ian, you're the expert, so correct me wrong, is a lot of the automated processes we have are in fact expert systems so these are things that are designed and coded by people and kind of follow a a binary model yes no yes no and in fact some laws can be put into that model some laws actually do lend themselves to being put into an um you know a decision tree or or a you know sort of Um, decision pathway where we we follow the reasoning through and often people go well we should be worried about machine learning because that's the it's machine learning that raises the black box problems if we don't know how the decisions are made because they're based in correlations that are found in large data sets identified through neural networks or some other form of um technology whereas export systems are programmed by humans so we've got more control of them but from the perspective of the citizen they don't know which system is being used and it doesn't really matter to them because in either case they don't have scrutiny of the system they don't have a way of challenging the decision they don't have a way of understanding it and some expert system decisions are really complicated and some of them do make use of models that have been derived from machine learning, um, and others make use of complicated algorithms. So the systems themselves, even when they're not, you know, the pure form of, of AI or, or, or the like, can still be inaccessible to the human who's subject to the decision and often those expert systems if they've been bought from outside the government are subject to confidentiality requirements so again they can't be scrutinized so I think the distinction of course between machine learning systems and other kinds of systems is important but let's remember from the perspective of the person who is subject to the decision is made in that way it doesn't matter and from the perspective of the worker. Who is charged with implementing the decisions made through those systems? It often doesn't matter because there's a number of examples of automated systems that have palpably been making wrong decisions. Yes, but the worker can't intervene. The person, or the the, the bureaucrat, or the um, you know, the person in Centrelink or another government department can't actually intervene to change the outputs of that expert system. So. Mm-hmm. So those, those, those concerns about, that we tend to associate with AI, I think do backwash onto some complicated expert systems. And we always need to be concerned, not just from the perspective of the technology, but the perspective of the person who's having to work with it.
2: Yeah, I really do agree with what Jenny's saying. From, the, from a, a customer citizen's perspective, it doesn't matter whether it's a, a sophisticated bit of AI or a rules-based system any system must have the right to appeal and that right to appeal has to be straightforward it can't be arduous when when talking about very sophisticated systems uh, which are such as the uh, automatic uh, mobile phone detection for drivers or uh, speed cameras there are mechanisms for appeal which do get uh, caught up in in legal systems which are not necessarily that straightforward to appeal but if you've got a fine if there should be some very simple way of of appealing and, and, and looking to seek redress, and the issue about explainability is, is one that comes up quite often. It, it, it is the case that increasingly complex systems produce results which are difficult to explain. If you've got a result you can't explain because the black box said, that it's absolutely essential to have a human being in the loop to be able to identify whether or not yeah. that result is is a bit appropriate for those circumstances.
0: Yeah, I mean, and if you're talking about a private a private sector company that maybe spends a you know, uses um, findings from AI systems to to drive an expensive marketing campaign, and it succeeds or it doesn't succeed. Well, that's not neither here or there. That um, obviously, in in the public sector, the implications are are potentially dire. There's you know, there's legal implications, and obviously political implications as well. Given that, Ian, do you think that? And this is probably just a rhetorical question now to think about it that that people in in the public sector that are buying IT, procurement offices, um, are having very different conversations with AI vendors than, say, their counterparts in the private sector?
2: Sorry, that's a a really interesting question. Government has obligations and has has abilities which are different to uh, private sector companies. So as a consequence, government is typically more conservative and typically more hesitant to uptake Uh, new technologies in particular because of concerns about unintended consequences. With I mentioned, we just produced the AI assurance framework. So it was adopted by cabinet in mid-December last year, after a year of, of working through the principles and applying it to existing AI solutions, all of which were being piloted. And some of the conclusions we reached were that we we absolutely need to be able to balance a couple of issues. It needs to be complex enough to be useful. It needs to be uh, simple enough to be usable. Uh, It needs to help ensure that people understand their responsibilities for using AI without placing more responsibility than the existing solution had. We have to be able to understand the potential harms, but also compare that to how things are done at the moment. And, and fundamentally, it's an assurance framework for use of AI, as opposed to an assurance framework for health or for justice or for education. We're looking at education's use of AI, not not education. And so, within all of that, we, we struck what I think is quite a good balance of, of five or six different degrees of not not attentions, they're not opposites, but there are, there are different ways of considering where you put the balance and trying to understand or build in place the principles of fairness and transparency and benefit. But there was one that we were really concerned about and that was procurement, simply because it's great for an internal solution to go through all of these different analysis or review or examination and consideration of harms. But if you just know and none of those issues map across from what the vendor is producing, whether it's a standard solution, a customizable, or a completely bespoke solution. If that doesn't translate into the domain of of people using the tools, if something is a bit broken there. So we're in the process right at the moment of exploring that with a a, a live project and program, where we're looking to increasingly, as we narrow down the the field of applicants to supply a solution, increasingly cross into the vendor domain and say, Could you explain the solution? And if not, what are the mitigating approaches you can take? Is it clear that you're able to understand data bias? Can you understand or deal with issues of of, of data imbalance or a whole range of different issues? Can you describe the the biases in your algorithm? And it's, it's a brand new position for anyone to be in but then that then needs to map into the actual solution, the responsible officers identified within New South Wales government, who's responsible for policy outcome, who's responsible for application of the insights, who's responsible for performance, and who's responsible for data governance, the four main roles. And this, it, it's, it is a work in progress. So we're, we're in, we, we are literally stepping through a live a couple of examples right at the moment to ensure that we can assure where the solution is fulfilling. Sure. And
0: presumably it's also very important that you have you know increased awareness throughout the public sector and the different you know the different levels of seniority about the use of these technologies as well because you know it's going to be it will be presumably problematic down the track if, if that you know increased awareness were to not occur right because then you still have large numbers of people that are oblivious to you know what is behind the systems that they are sort of you know, working with and presiding at
2: yeah absolutely so there's a couple of fundamentals that we we really identified in i mentioned we did the ai strategy and then the data strategy and part of that was because data usage is a, is a bigger deal than ai just from the perspective of all the different ways you can use it and one of the call outs was there needs to be an uplift in terms of everyone's understanding of how to use data everyone's understanding of appropriate uses of data and that speaks to how to get to you what's the data quality what guidance do you need to put or or prohibitions do you need to put on a a use of a data product or an insight that's been created from that point? And also thinking about, is it appropriate to use this data for this particular purpose? So to to get back to one of Jeannie's points, the issue about end, I mean, customers, citizens, actually not caring about whether it's a, an automated process or a sophisticated al- algorithmic process, it, it's, again, I agree that's exactly right. It's, it's a decision which is made, which has been informed by some sort of, of uh, data-driven process. So what, what the people using the system really need to be aware of is when a system will keep producing the same result every single time, given the same inputs, versus when it will start to change over time and when it will start to adapt. And the the willingness for people to to use those those systems which adapt over time has to be built into an environment where people really understand what they need to watch out for as things start to go wrong. Going back to those automated processes, exactly the same thing must apply there as well. So not only understanding that you will get the same result every single time with the same inputs, but understanding if there's something else you need to understand so that you could make a human-style judgment and say, stop, there's something different about this case. Mm. Or there's something we've gone beyond reasonable levels of, of, for example, garnishing to enable that a human being to intervene in that situation. There there are lots and lots of systems that get automated. Payroll systems are automated occasionally they go wrong because you either don't have the right information, data quality issue, you haven't understood that there's there's a little something special about this person. So there's there's this context which is needed. And those systems, I mean payroll systems when they go wrong, need to be readily addressable. Pay is a pretty sensitive issue, taking money out of people's accounts is pretty sensitive. So the ability to step in and say, we acknowledge that sometimes things will go wrong. We need to very quickly be able to stop any potential harms associated with those when things are going wrong and reverse or, or ameliorate those harms as quickly as possible, as painlessly as possible. That's, that is the one small benefit that's coming from the scrutiny that AI is getting. We're going back and having a look at how we used to do things or how we have done things in the past and thought about whether or not it's actually an algorithmic issue, it's a data issue, it's a policy-setting issue, or, in fact, if there's something else we need to think about, such as the, the, the inability to step in and intervene in a process which could one in a million times go wrong or one in a thousand times go wrong. But that that's, that is one of the side benefits of saying we've got to be able to do it for AI. In practice, as we look back, we say, well, actually, we should be able to do it for a lot of processes.
1: Yeah. So that's really interesting, Ian. Because actually, if we think back to the Banking Royal Commission, one of the one of the horrors of the Banking Royal Commission, the fees for no service, where banks were continuing to take fees for financial services that weren't being provided, and in fact. Charging fees to dead people, where they would continuing to take yeah. um, fees from people who—that who'd
0: wasn't where the PR nightmare went over the cliff. Yeah, go on.
1: Yeah, Sorry. but those—that's a really good example because those weren't sophisticated algorithmic systems. Those were simple automated pay systems, but but and they were probably you know historical systems that people had. Just stopped looking at, or the two sides of the department—one that dealt with customers and one that dealt with payments—stopped talking to each other. But that's a really good example of why, as as Ian's saying, you know, we're focused on machine learning or AI, but we can have a back that can have a backwash effect on scrutinising the governance processes for all automated systems, or at least the more sophisticated. Ones. I mean, I don't think we need to scrutinise vending machines, for example, you know, in the cafeteria, but yeah. <laughs> the ones that have, have greater impacts. But yeah. I did have a question then coming out of that for Ian, which is something that we are dealing with at the university and with my centre, which is, a, you know, primarily about teaching people about these things, is how do you upskill the you know the, the public service who are having to to change their own workplaces work practices very quickly to deal with these technologies.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, the, the the simplest answer is the public service commission and ensuring that there are some fundamental that everyone gets everyone gets and that that helps in terms of we all do mandatory cybersecurity training we all do mandatory uh, data governance training and that's really the the, the entry level. More importantly, I think those who are increasingly become close to either asking for or using data, or those who are making strategic decisions, which are going to be based on data, I think, I think there's more that needs to be done in that space. But I think really at the, the really senior end, we should have a safe space for very senior people to ask questions about what happens if I did do this? What are the things I need to consider? Or you know, why can't we do this? And those two questions are really quite scary questions to be able to ask if you're not in a trusted environment because of the risk of either being seen to not understand this this new domain clearly enough or not necessarily thinking through some of the consequences. So I think there are a couple of different extra things we need to do above and beyond those basic fundamentals of data use, data governance. This is how to ask the data question, but really for more senior folks to say, these are the consequences if you did, and be able to address the why can't we do those sort of questions?
0: And look question for you both, open ended sort of blue sky question. You know, do we do we anticipate that, you know, down the track, you know, some of these more unfortunate examples of AI systems going wrong will cease to, to occur? The compass example in- in the states, is a, is a pretty compelling one where we, the system was found to you know, be harbouring bias against African Americans within the the parole system within within the US. There are many, many other many other examples, including examples in Australia with the Department of Immigration and elsewhere. Do we think that, that those kind of you know stuff-ups, for one of a more elegant way of putting it, are, uh, are are going to be a
2: thing of the past? Go first, then Jenny can have the last word. So uh, <laughs> I think it won't be a thing of the past. I think we will be uh, more and more use of data, use of AI is inevitable. We are seeing it everywhere. And that includes widespread use of commercially available solutions, which are essentially the widgets, the the Alexa's and the series. they're increasingly being used. And we don't yet know what the full consequences of even use of commercial widespread applications are. We know that in the world of of customizable or truly bespoke, we must be more careful. And the New South Wales attitude is deliberate, but cautious. So it's going to happen, let's make sure we we pilot and scale, let's try to think ahead and these are the sorts of things in the assurance framework, think ahead about what could go wrong. Think not only about those immediate consequences, but but secondary considerations. What if other people get swept up in an AI system that's unintended? What What are the consequences of repeated application of an AI system? And to think about not only what might happen, but also the mitigating factors, and then think about how much scrutiny do you need on your AI solution? Is it okay to have internal review? Must it be external review? Or must be really formal external review? And that again, depends a little bit on the potential consequences. And then go through the process of understanding all of the stuff that you need to understand about your data, your algorithm, and your outputs. Have someone really constantly checking the the outputs, the outcomes, and thinking through all of those steps from, from beginning to end, and then never stopping. It's not, it's not a set and forget. It cannot be. Any system that can adapt is something that needs to be constantly monitored. Any system which can't adapt needs to be able to handle exceptions. So the two different sorts of opposite views to set and forget. I think set and forget is where, where things really go wrong. And then finally, when things do go wrong, there must be a straightforward mechanism not only to tell people it's happened, but also to do something about it to to mitigate or reduce the harms as quickly as possible. And within those frameworks, I think we will increasingly use AI and data, but that only works provided things we we don't have catastrophic situations, which essentially blow the trust of, of people using the systems and also people who are impacted by those systems.
0: Sure. Jenny?
1: Well, that's such a great answer from Ian, and incredibly re- reassuring from the people of New South Wales. I guess I come back to the human element, and I know, I mean, we've spoken, and I've spoken about this in the past, but however good your AI system or your expert system is, it's only as good as the people around it. The compass example is a really good example of that because the compass example, that that algorithm does exactly what it's asked to do, which mm. is to rank for recidivism on the basis of historical data. Yeah. Historical data, as we know, is what's biased.
0: Yeah.
1: And what people do with that data is potentially biased and problematic. Yes. So it's the people sitting around the system that determine how well the system works, as well as, of course, the things Ian's spoken about, about, you know, designing and testing and retesting and auditing and iterating. But the people sitting around the system are important and they need to understand, unfortunately, or it's a challenge. They need to understand enough about the technology to be able to ask the questions um, that Ian's speaking about. And they also need to be reflective enough about the society we live in now and the society we want to live in to make sure that the policy decisions that are made about the implementation of those data-driven systems are genuinely helping people and genuinely upholding democratic ideals.
0: Yeah. Well, it's it's so true. And it's it's such a great point about, you know, the importance of considering what is the data that you are feeding into the system anyway. And then the other... You know, popular, popular, sort of widely discussed example is the Amazon resume debacle, where you had generation, you know, generation of resumes, most of which were male, fed into a system, which had, through no fault of its own, just declared that well, if you had things like women's volleyball team on your CV, well, therefore you're unlikely you're going to be an inferior candidate. I mean, a very embarrassing situation. And that's- that's
1: that's almost that's that example of the Amazon hiring tool is a really good example about why these that these have to be questions that are asked in society now, because of course historically women weren't being weren't training as software engineers, but but so simply adjusting the algorithm to say don't take gender into account wasn't going to work because yeah. that particular algorithm was looking for correlations. and the correlation was, certain words associated with women meant not good and certain words associated with male experiences meant good but it was just historical data as you say so we've still got that social that policy choice about what we do with that and that's a choice for humans not for machines
0: yeah and 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 also that that further highlights the importance of having deeper more widespread awareness about these these systems and what they're capable of doing and in good ways and bad ways right throughout public service and of course you know in the private sector as well. Thank you both so much. Fascinating conversation. Let's see how all of this pans out uh, this year. Ian, I was I was kind of expecting you to be more of a Pollyanna, I suppose, about about the future of uh, AI systems in government, and, and it was refreshing to, to hear that very, very um, realistic uh, account. Thank you both again, and look forward to having you back on the CIO show soon. Thanks for having Thanks. us,
1: David. Thanks, David.
2: Thanks,
0: Jimmy. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. Coming up next, we're gonna be talking about, and hopefully to Australia's digital transformation agency, the DTA, about recent changes to its senior leadership, including high profile departures and the appointment of yet another CEO, Chris Fetchner, in October last year. We also understand the DTA's remit has shifted significantly from leading digital projects and being a digital disruptor to being more of an advisor and overseer. We've not had a lot of luck getting the DTA to speak with us here at CIO, and we're not alone in the media possibly because of the heavy criticism the agency has come under in recent years, as it's overseen some of the biggest digital projects across government in Australia. But we're nevertheless hoping to have Bechner or someone else from the DTA come onto the show to help us better understand this new direction, sorts of projects it's currently working on and how it's helping to advance the broader digital ecosystem in Australia. We hope you can join us.